Good morning. It's nice to see you this morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor John and Pastor Terry, for giving me this opportunity to partake in the uh, Sermon on the Mount series that was started last week and will continue for the next couple. So I encourage you, of course, to uh, join us each week for this series. My wife, Gina, whom you just met, and I are not shoppers. We're not good at shopping. We don't shop as a pastime. Uh, We just don't do a lot of shopping. Matter of fact, yesterday, I was supposed to meet a friend at the mall, and I realized that I hadn't been to the Christiana Mall since June of 2010. For some of you, you're just trying to, you can't even figure out how this was possible, I know. Since June of 2010, and I didn't even end up having to go yesterday. So I still haven't been to the mall since June 2010. So clearly we're not shoppers, we're not mall shoppers. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some stores that I prefer over others. So you can imagine my wife and I are driving home from somewhere, and Gina says, can we make a quick stop at a store? This is a delicate question, and answering it takes some strategy, because as you know, the answer depends on which store. Home Depot? Sure. (laughs) Joanne Fabrics? Not going to (laughs) happen. These are just the rules. Grocery store? Only if I can buy myself Tasty Cakes. That's the rule with that. Now, some stores have certain words in them that make them automatic yeses. For example, sports. That's a yes. Sports Authority, Dick's Sporting Goods, Modell Sporting Goods. It has the word sport in it. That's an automatic yes. Other words are an automatic no, like the word dress. (laughs) Dress barn, Ross's Dress for Less, those those are no's. Or any store where the store name, the store subtitle, the store advertising, or the store window has anything with the word shoe in it. That's a no. These are just the rules, but there are some, there is one store that my family, my whole family can agree on, me and my wife and my two kids, we all like staples. See, you like staples too, I can tell. And I don't know what it is. I know I'm not the only one who likes staples. I think we like staples because it taps in to a fantasy world of ours. It taps into a fantasy world that our lives could be this organized. (laughs) We walk in and we go, wow, bins and stacks and all the pens are in the same place. This place is beautiful. And so we engage in this fantasy and we buy ourselves a little, like, paper clip holder because we say, this is the start of my organized life. <laughs> it's a fantasy world of efficiency and organization. And not only does Staples want to provide us with all we need for that world, but they want us to tell us that doing so is easy. That's their slogan. Staples. That was easy. They will even sell you a button, not unlike this one, (laughs) that reminds you, Staples, that was easy, see, in case you're ever not sure, you can have the button, that was easy, this of course just adds to the fantasy of the ease that organization, an organized life could be. 
Organized living is not easy for most of us, but you know what? It is for some. You know who you are. You've got not only bins, but bins that have been labeled using a label maker. You know who you are. Your highlighters are all organized by color. You know who you are. Some of you, the organized life actually is somewhat easy. Which brings us to a little bit of a question. What does it mean for something to be easy? It seems to me that there's various levels of easiness. That the, that the idea of easy varies from one person to the next. What might be easy for me is not so easy for you. I want to do a little exercise to exemplify this. Will you do an exercise with me? Yeah. All right, good. Here is, you know, not that you have a choice, but here we go anyway. Uh, here's a little exercise. I'm going to put four questions on the screen. All you need to do is tell me, of the four questions, which one's the easiest. Okay? Question number one. What Shakespearean character says the famous line, something is rotten in the state of Denmark? Question number two. What is the atomic number of boron? Question number three. What are these? Question number four. During the week of April 4th, 1964, the Beatles held the top five position on Billboard's Hot 100 list, a feat never since repeated. Name the five songs. Now, which of these questions is the easiest? Well, my hunch is that the one that's easiest for you is not the one that's easiest for me. And I imagine also that there's at least one question up there that's literally impossible for you. You could not answer it if your life depended on it. For me, obviously, number one is clearly the easiest. Everyone knows that that statement's from Hamlet, but Hamlet didn't say it. Marcellus said it. Now, you're looking at me right now saying, why should I care? (laughs) And it's okay. I teach Hamlet three times a year to seniors. I get that look all the time. You shouldn't care. You don't have to care. The fact of the matter is, for me, number one's the easiest because I'm roughly overly familiar with Hamlet. What's the atomic number of boron? I have no idea. The only way I would get the answer to that question is if I just started naming numbers and you stopped me when I got to the atomic number of boron. Anyone know the atomic number of boron? It's five. There you go. What are these? I would never know this. Stitches. They're stitches that my wife's sewing machine can do. I, you know, my life could have depended on it, and I never, I, squiggly lines was the closest I got. But many of you knew that one. For many of you, number three was the easiest. Of course, they're stitches. What else could they be? Number four, of course, is the one where you all want partial credit. You all, I can get three of them. I can get, is that partial credit? Do I still pass? Partial credit. Can't buy me love. Twist and shout. She loves you. I want to hold your hand and please, please me were the top five Beatles songs on that date. Well, I hope this quiz makes the point that the word easy is a little relative. We might not all agree on what things are easy and what things are not easy. And so ironically, the idea of easy is not all that easy to get our brains around. 
Which brings us to the core question of today's sermon and the challenge of it. And that is, is Christianity easy? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word this morning. We come as learners. We come as students of your truth. And so, Lord, these pages that I have typed up here are just words without your spirit's power behind them. And so I ask that your spirit would empower my words. But, Lord, these words will just fall on deaf ears if your spirit is not empowering those in this room to listen. And so, Lord, I ask that your spirit would indwell me and my words. It would indwell those who are here, that they would be listeners. And that, Lord, you would make the connection between the words that are spoken, the words from your scripture, and their lives, and our lives. So we may walk out of here with a better understanding of following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Christianity easy is the question I want us to deal with for a few minutes this morning. And I want us to deal with this question because I think it's the question that Jesus is dealing with in the section that we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pick up at verse 17. We're going to actually look at verses 17 all the way through 48, which is a big chunk of verses. What we're going to look to do today is to sort of look at the structure, the overall lesson, the overall picture that Christ is painting in these verses, which means there's a lot left to study. So I encourage you, as you look at Scripture and pray and and, uh, do your Bible studies this week, perhaps Matthew 5 is a place to turn as we're learning this series at church. You can go in in more depth with some of the things Jesus is saying in the different sections of this passage. But for today, we're going to look at it sort of in a bird's eye view. But I will have us read 17 through 20. I'm going to read it from the ESV, which is on the screen behind me, the English Standard Version, but it's very similar to the one uh, that you have, the NIV. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. By this time in Jesus' ministry, he's clearly already not a friend of the religious establishment, or at least they're not his friend. Already it seems he's been accused of violating the law, of sort of pushing up against the expected uh, Jewish understanding of how to follow the law, those Jewish ways of the day. day. But Jesus objects to that accusation by saying that he has not come to break the law, that indeed he has come to, to to not only keep the law, but to fulfill it. And he goes on to give a warning. He goes on to say, whoever even relaxes one of these laws will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And it's this idea of relaxing the laws, of making them a little easier, that sort of sets up the pattern for what Jesus is going to be talking about in the verses to come. 
And so as we look at these verses, think of this idea of relaxing the commandments, or the NIV says setting them aside, or we might say making them easier. And Jesus sets up this, in, in the rest of this chapter, this sort of pattern where he's going to say, you have heard that it was said. Here's what your, your teachers have been teaching you. Here's what you've been hearing from, from your uh, scribes and your Pharisees. This is what you've heard being said, but I tell you. And he's going to do this six times that make up the structure for the rest of this passage. So from 21 to 47, he begins by saying in verse 21, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not be angry. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, do not lust. In 31, you have heard that it was said, only divorce with a certificate of divorce. But I say, avoid divorce in as many circumstances as possible. Verse 33, do not take false oaths is what you've heard. But I say, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. You have heard that it was said in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, turn the other cheek. And finally, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not necessarily denying the truth of one side. He's not saying, well, you know, it's actually okay to murder or it's okay to lie. But what he's saying is that those standards are too low. That they're missing the intent of the law. He's accusing the the religion of the day of being too easy. You've made it too easy. You've made it a check marks of following certain rules. Jesus is trying to raise the standard to the intent of the law all along, which is why he's able to say at the beginning to the people, he says, if your righteousness has to exceed, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. They have made it too easy. Jesus is saying they've settled for the minimum requirements. This side over here is the minimum requirements. I teach college students, and oftentimes they're in a class that's being paid for by their employer. Except that in order to get their tuition reimbursed, they have to have a certain minimum grade because their employer doesn't pay them to fail classes. And so they'll, I'll, every, every semester I'll have somebody come up to me and say, I just need a C so I can get my reimbursement. Questions like that make we educators proud. <laughs> but before we feel too critical towards these students, we must understand that it is a disposition in humanity to go for the minimum standard and then to congratulate ourselves on achieving it. Think about it this way. You ask a random person on the street, are you a sinner? You're likely to get some answer that sounds something like this. Well, I've never killed anyone. I'm thinking that's a minimum standard. I mean, that's good. I affirm the not killing. But isn't that a minimum standard? And then the list will often be this minimum standard. Well, I don't steal. I pay my taxes. 
I'm generally a nice person. It's sort of this minimum standard. And these minimum standards are often wrapped up in building certain rules. Because if I can follow the rules, check, 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 then I know I'm good. But the rules that we set tend to be sort of minimum standards. Some religions have their entire hope of salvation based on following the right rules, doing the right works at the right time. And ironically, religion often becomes something that separates us from God because we take the good rules that are from God, but we separate them from the God who gave the rules. And we begin thinking that the rules themselves are what saves Recently, there was an article in, in a most recent issue of Christianity Today titled, Good Religion, Bad Religion. There's one quote I put on the screen for you. Much of the time, religion is an attempt to avoid the living God. We tend to create rituals and beliefs, rites and ethical systems to justify our existence, to placate our guilt and fear of death, to make ourselves useful to the world and acceptable to God. In short, religion is our valiant attempt to get right with God while ignoring the fact and way that he has gotten right with us, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. I think this is the idea that Jesus is getting to in the Sermon on the Mount, or this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying that he himself, he himself, is the way of reconciliation between God and us. Look where he heads. He says, I see how you've been understanding the law, but you've you've set the bar way too low. So low, in fact, that your souls are in danger of not entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, let me explain the requirements of the law to you. No anger, no lust, no divorce, no lying, no hatred, no revenge. That does not sound easy, which I think is exactly Jesus' point. Gets more difficult as the list goes on. He comes to verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That does not sound easy. But in case you're still not convinced, Jesus adds one more. He says, in summary, looking at verse 48, if if you've missed it somehow through the rest of the little section of the Sermon on the Mount, if you've missed the high standard, Jesus wraps it up by saying, verse 48, be perfect. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Fine. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This week kicks off the 2011-2012 school year. And I, like many other teachers, are starting to prepare my materials, projects, papers, and yes, tests. Now, I don't give a lot of tests because I have more English and publication design, so it's more projects and 
papers, but I do give some tests. And whenever you're talking to students about a test or you're reviewing for the test, you inevitably get the question, is the test easy? Now, I've been teaching for a while. I've experimented with different answers to this question. I used to answer, yes, it's exactly what we studied. I would give the test and be told in no uncertain terms that just because it was on what we studied did not make it easy. And so I tried the personal responsibility tact. It will be easy if you study. I would give the test and the students would insist that they really studied. And it still was not easy. So I tried to be funny. Yes, it's easy. I answered all the questions. I didn't get any of them wrong. <laughs> not only did they not find that funny, but they still insisted that the test was not easy. So I've just not been able to win. I'm trying something new this year. I want to test it on you. Okay? It's in beta form. I'm not sure if I'm going to keep it. But let me just, can I try it? Okay. Student. Mr. Bino. Is the Beowulf test easy? Mr. Bino. No, it is pretty much impossible. (laughs) Student. Uh, really? Mr. Bino. Yes, you will fail. This test will likely destroy your grade and all hopes you have of getting into the university of your choice. I figure it's a win-win for me. (laughs) Because if they take the test and it's easy, then they think they're brilliant. But if they take the test and it's hard, I can say, well, I told you it was. So, all right, I'm still testing it. I might not use it. Teenagers are fragile. I don't know. My psyche, I don't know. But I want to use that illustration to connect something for us. I want to connect the phrase that Jesus used, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. I want to connect that with our opening question, is Christianity easy? So us, all of humanity. Jesus, is getting into the kingdom of God easy? Jesus, no. It's pretty much impossible. Us, really? Jesus, yes. By your own works, by your own efforts, you will fail. And all hope of entering the kingdom of God, will fail as well. You see, if the standard of pleasing God is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, then we are all excluded because none of us are perfect. And our reaction to this, and I think it's the reaction that Jesus is going for, our reaction for this, as we look at this standard, this much higher than the minimum standard, is for us to say, well, then who can be saved? If that's the case, then we're all doomed. Which is exactly what the disciples asked just a few chapters later. When Jesus gives another hard teaching about entering the kingdom of heaven, the disciples say, well, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus answers with this. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And this is the point where I think Christ is trying to bring his audience and us all along. 
And that is to say, we need a Savior. Following the rules, a certain set of works, will not cut it because they will not bring the perfection into our lives that only Christ can bring into us. We can't meet the requirements. We need someone to stand in our place who can. And that someone is Christ. Which brings us all the way back around to the beginning of the passage where Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. Because he fulfills the law perfectly, he is able to save those of us who cannot. When we accept him into our lives. So on the one hand, is Christianity easy? Well, no. It's impossible if you're trying to do it on your own. It's impossible without Christ in our lives. You cannot work or earn or rule your way into the kingdom of God. But what happens once Christ is in your life? Now are we able to do these things? Can we now conquer anger and avoid lust and love our enemies? Can we do these things that Jesus has asked us to do in this sermon? I think the definitive answer of the scripture is yes. Once Christ, the same power of Christ that brings you into the kingdom is the same power that allows you to meet the glorious vision that God has for his people. The same Christ that has the power to save us is the same Christ that has the power to empower us to follow in God's character. If we're going to be that salt and that light, that city on the hill that Jesus talked about just before this passage, then we need to live up to the standards that Jesus is talking about here by the power of Christ. And I think the demands of this sermon are designed to make us depend on God. It's designed to say, I cannot, not only can I not enter the kingdom without Christ, but I can't remain faithful in the kingdom without Christ. But see, a weird thing will happen with Christians. We start losing that second piece. We, we, we kind of understand sometimes that I needed Christ to enter the kingdom, but once we're in, we start trying to do it on our own again. I'm going I'm to conquer this sin in my life. By sheer willpower. Mm. Make yourself do it. You grit your teeth, say, I'm going to do it. And then you fail. And then you try some other method. And all along, you're sort of trying it without Christ in your life. You're not leaving it to Christ. You're not giving it to Christ. You're not using the power of Christ. You see, God has these beautiful, God-sized expectations for who we can be as his people. I mean, he says, you guys are a city on a hill. In a dark world, you're the light that shines in the darkness. You're the, you're the, the city that I want others to, to, to gather to. So be people who love your enemies. Be people who not only avoid adultery, but avoid lust. Be people who not only don't murder, but don't show anger. Be people who forgive. These are the kind of characteristics that make you shine more and more and more. But sometimes we take these God-sized expectations for our faith and we start moving backwards into the minimum requirements. We try to make our own faith too easy. 
And if you dumb it down enough, if you, if you make your Christianity too easy, then you, you end up eliminating the need for Christ in your life because you're not trying to do anything that requires his power. You're not trying to conquer anything in your life that requires his power. You've just accepted that thing, and you've said, that's minimum standard, it's okay. But the vision of God for your life is that you work out those things and become holier and holier. We are able to do the impossible in our own characters because God is in our lives. Growing up, my grandmother had this little saying, this little piece of advice. This is straight from the cornfields and chicken houses of Federalsburg, Maryland. She says, she would say this, don't drink, don't curse, don't chew, and don't run with women who do. <laughs> that was quaint. But I think it, I, I'm putting that in the category of minimum standards. I did not meet Gina and say, do you drink? No. Curse? No. Chew? No. You marry me? <laughs> I mean, I had other standards. If we want to be who God says we are, the light and the city on the hill, then we've got to look at the higher standards of holiness for our lives. If Jesus were to hear this little saying, he might say, you have heard that it was said, do not get drunk. But I tell you, be cautious about anything that creates an addiction. Sports, TV, alcohol, gambling. Be wary of anything. Don't go for the minimum standard. Be aware of anything in your life that's got you a hold of you. He might say, well, you've heard it was said, do not curse. But I say, speak words that build people up. Words of compassion. Words of hope. Words of life. Anyone cannot curse, but it takes people who are living on the city and the hill to speak words of life. He might say, you have heard that it was say, do not chew, but I say, be respectful to your body in every way. Not abusing it, but also not using it as a weapon for manipulating others, be it sexually, be it your sexuality or your beauty or your strength. Don't manipulate others. Will that be easy? Well, this is a place where I think it's sometimes relative. Overcoming anger may be easy for some of you, while, while forgiveness isn't. Dealing with lust might be easy for some of you, while dealing with gossip might not be. And so something has to happen with us as a community is we have to be compassionate with one another. Because we have to understand that what's been easy for you to overcome might be the greatest difficulty in their lives. And so we become very unjudgmental, I think. Because we all understand, we, have, we all have our things, and we all have our things that only Christ can deal with. And so this morning, I invite you to explore your life and ask, where have I accepted the minimum standards for my faith? Perhaps the question is not, is Christianity easy? 
But have I made my Christianity too easy? The worship team is going to come and they're going to help to lead us in a time of reflection. And I encourage you today to look into your own life and think about how can I be that light and that, that bright city on a hill? It's going to take more than the minimum. Look for a second at verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? You see, if we follow only the minimum standards, then we are not separating ourselves out from the rest. But I tell you, friends, you start being someone who loves your enemies, you start being someone who does not get wrapped up in anger, you become someone who releases bitterness and lets it go, you become someone who is not captured by the images of our, of our world, lusting after them, you become that type of person. And as you're becoming that type of person, your light will shine brighter and brighter, individually, as families, as a church community. Because we have not accepted just the minimum standards, but we've reached for the holy expectations of God.